Uh, but we are, before we get to baptisms, we are actually going to be diving into our Easter Lenten series. Now, there's two major sort of holy days in Christianity. There's other holy days, but the major, major ones are Christmas and Easter. Now, Christmas we love a lot because it's surrounded by presents, and generally, even at its religious core, it's celebrating the birth of a little six-pound, 12-ounce baby Jesus. And everybody loves that little baby being born. There's nothing wrong with Christmas, but Easter, Easter gets a little bit morbid. (laughs) Easter gets a little bit uh, dirty, right? So Easter is filled with bunnies and spring and eggs and Cadbury eggs and all of those sorts of things. And at its religious core, it's a celebration of life. It's a celebration of the resurrected Christ and the hope for our resurrection as well. But you don't get to the resurrection, you don't get to the life, unless you walk through the gruesomeness and sadness and grief of death first. And so because of that, I think we always kind of like to downplay Easter a bit. We don't want to talk about the death. But this time around, as we approach Easter, we're going to talk kind of a lot about death. But in the death, we're going to see how much hope and life exists. And so as a result, our series for um, this Lenten season, as we walk towards Easter, is actually going to be called Dead Man Walking. Now this is a phrase that has been used over the years to describe a person who has committed a capital offense and is walking towards their impending death. Now, of course, this person is literally not dead, right? They're still walking, so they're not literally dead. However, their death is so real and so eminent that the criminal, that, that it's so certain that it looms over every step that they take towards execution. Now, in a lot of ways, dead man walking is sort of a poignant way to describe the incarnate life and ministry of Jesus. His death was so eminent, so, so absolutely certain that it was so real, real that it loomed over every step that Jesus took towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. But the death that Jesus was facing wasn't really a result of any capital punishment that he had, uh, that he had done. In fact, it wasn't the result of any offense that he had done. He actually was facing his death and walking towards his death because of our offenses. The death was the result of others, of, of us, of you and me. He was a dead man walking by choice. And every step that Jesus took towards the cross was motivated by his love for us. And so over the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we are actually going to be retracing the steps of Jesus on his way to the cross as told by Matthew in his gospel. From his baptism to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we're going to look at six defining moments that gives us a glimpse into the depth and the heart of the one who died to bring us life. Now, I think it was this past week, me and my daughter had gone on a special date to Chick-fil-A. And if you know me, you know a date to Chick-fil-A is kind of the best part of a date, right? So we were at Chick-fil-A, and she discovered that they had not given us any Chick-fil-A sauce. And if you know me or you know Chick-fil-A, the best part of Chick-fil-A is the Chick-fil-A sauce. And so she kind of was like, what? No Chick-fil-A sauce? And I said, yeah, 
they forgot to give that. You're going to have to go up to the counter, and you're going to have to get it. And so very quickly, we have this coaching session, and I tell her, what are the words that you say? What do you say after they give it to you? What, how are you going to use your body to say, I need something, right? Like all of those sorts of things. So I coached her about this whole thing, and then she gets up from the table ready to go, and she walks over to the counter, and meanwhile, I stand up so I can see her over the condiment counter, and I can sort of watch as she goes up to the people. And she stands there, and she stands there, and I'm watching as each person gets close to her, as every passerby and stranger walks towards her to make sure that she is safe, and she is protected, and nobody's going to mess with her. But then she stands there. For about three minutes, she stands there. And the customer service person is helping all the other people, but they are overlooking my child. And so I stand there, and I start waving. And I finally make contact with one of the workers. Hey, 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 her, her. Do not miss the cute, patient little girl in front of the counter. She actually needs your help. And so when I make eye contact with the worker, she then approaches this little girl and says, oh, you're so cute. What do you need? And she gets her the Chick-fil-A sauce that she needs. And my daughter comes back and she sits down and she's very proud of herself. And I cheered her on on what a good job she did, that she was patient and she stayed persistent. And eventually they talked to her and she got what she needed. See, she's my child. So when I send her on a mission, she's not alone. When I send her on a mission, she has the blessing of a parent watching out for her, advocating for her, cheering her on, guiding and protecting her. This is what a good parent does when they send their child out on a mission. Now, in the same way, when God sends us out on a mission, we carry the blessing of God with us. And at the very beginning of Jesus' mission, this is what we see God doing. As he's sending Jesus on, he sends Jesus with this blessing, with this profound truth that will lay the foundation for the rest of his ministry and his journey to the cross. Now, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, we're all pretty familiar. It's the Christmas story. What we see when we start reading the book of Matthew is we get the genealogy of Jesus, and then we get the birth of Jesus, and then we hear about um, the Magi visiting, and we hear about the, them leaving uh, Herod, uh, killing all of the babies, and then having to escape to Egypt, and then them moving back to Nazareth. This is all within the first two chapters. This is a part of sort of the Christmas narrative. But then we get nothing about the rest of Jesus' childhood. It skips forward about 30 years, little to no information. And then, like a movie that has just done this intro scene of the main character's birth or childhood, it jumps to, now they're an adult. And so when we jump into chapter 3, it's 30 years later, and we're told this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, we're told that John the Baptist is actually the cousin of Jesus. We find out about that in the, in the account by Luke. John is this really weird dude. We're told that he, like, wears camel hair, and he wore a leather belt, and he ate locust and wild honey. He lived out in the desert, and despite his unkept look, like, people came to see him all the time. They always wanted to know, what is John doing? What's he up to? What he's talking about? They wanted to hear 
what he had to say. And what he told them was they needed to be baptized. They needed to walk into the Jordan River and allow him to push them underneath the water, to totally submerge them and bring them back up. That this is what they needed to do. Now, this was really, really strange. Now, baptism wasn't a totally new thing. Typically, Jews would baptize Gentiles or non-Jews when they wanted to convert to Judaism. It was a cleansing ritual where Gentiles would go under the water as a symbol of renouncing their old way of life, their old customs. It was a death to their former life. And then they'd come up out of the water as a symbol to say that they're entering into a new life, a new covenant with God and God's people, that they would now be Jewish. They would be a part of God's people. They were now going to follow the Old Testament law. But here, John, who is a Jew, is calling for Jews to be baptized, to convert. So what is he converting them to? See, John's language is this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. Now, in order to understand how strange this is, you have to know what the original hearers believed about the kingdom of heaven. The common belief among the religious people of the day was that God would one day rule on earth. And it would be a reign filled with peace and love and justice. Around here, we often say that the kingdom will be a place where it's like heaven, but on earth, where heaven has come to earth. But they thought that God's kingdom was like way out in the future. They thought that there was no chance of it coming anytime soon. It was, it was way, way out there. No chance it was near. No chance it was present. It was in the future. It was far out. They also thought that the only way to enter into this kingdom was through their moral performance. They had to be really good. They had to prove themselves as pure and holy. And once God recognized how good they were at following all of the rules, then God would come. But John was telling them that this was, they were wrong. God, John was telling them that the kingdom was something totally different. He was telling them, hey, ready or not, pure or holy or not, the kingdom is coming. Because it doesn't depend on your performance. It depends on something totally different. The kingdom is near, it's close, it's coming. And because of that, you need to repent so you can be a part of it. Now, the crazy thing is, is like we don't use the word repent. We, we oftentimes think that repent means to say you're sorry. So we tell our children, say each, sorry to each other. And well, I'm sorry. And there's no heart behind it. So we think that, yeah, that's just saying you're sorry. To repent is to really feel sorry. But that's actually not either. it either. Repent isn't saying sorry and it isn't being remorseful. Repent actually means to turn away from something. Repent means like you're walking in one direction and to repent is to say, I no longer will go in this direction. I will now go in this direction. That's what repent means. And so when John tells them, hey, you need to repent, he's actually telling them you need to turn away from something. You need to change your behavior. You need to change your thinking. You need to change your feeling. You need to change the old way of doing something and start walking in a new direction. It's time to throw off that old life and take on new life. And so when John was calling listeners to repent and be baptized, he was calling them to renounce their old ways and to become a part of something new between God and God's people, his new kingdom. And he did this symbolically through the washing in water. 
Now, in the middle of all of this, John being out in the desert and saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near, and all these people coming to see him. In the middle of all of this, Jesus, is his adult self, shows up on the scene for the very first time. He just kind of comes walking in. Matthew tells us this. He says that then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. Now, John knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is the one who is supposed to inaugurate the kingdom, that that Jesus is the king of the whole thing that John's talking about. So naturally, John's reaction is like, no, 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 I can't baptize you. you. You need to baptize me. You're the king. But for Jesus, this is actually a really important turning point for Jesus as well. Now, unlike other humans, it wasn't Jesus' turning point to turn away from his sin. We believe that Jesus was fully God. There was no sin in him. Instead, we believe that this is his turning point. His, this baptism marks the moment when he reorients or turns his life towards the kingdom of God as well. It's this moment when he enters into public ministry. It's this moment when his life turns towards the cross. From this moment on, Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is to love people. But he didn't just love the ones that he wanted to love. Typically, that's what we do. We like to love the ones we like. We like to love the ones that are like us. We like to love the ones who will love us back. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He loves all of the people. He loves the ones who are different from him. He loves the ones who are not easy to love. He loves the ones who completely reject him. And Jesus loves people by showing and telling them what this kingdom of God is really like. He brings the kingdom of God near to them. And by doing so, they experience love. Because there was, will be no pain or sickness in heaven, Jesus begins to heal people from their pain and their sickness. Because there is restoration in heaven, Jesus begins to bring marginalized people into a place of belonging. Because there is grace in heaven, Jesus begins to lavish his grace on sinners. But before any of this mission had ever even started, before he ever stepped out into this public ministry, before any of his uh, healings had taken place, his amazing teachings had happened, before he performed any miracles, before anything happened, before any sacrifices have been made, God chose this moment to give Jesus a blessing, to remind him who he was, to lay a foundation on which all of this mission will be built. Matthew writes that it happened this way. As soon as Jesus was baptized, as soon as he came up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In this moment, God acknowledges Jesus as his son. He proclaims his love for him. And he said, I am well pleased with him. Before anything else happens, it's like God wants to affirm in Jesus and make sure that the world knows that this is the foundation on which his entire mission is built. 
Now, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, to be a Jesus follower, this is going to blow your mind. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? Unfortunately, we kind of forget that all the time. If he's on a mission and you're a follower, that means you are on a mission. You're on the same mission. If his mission is to love people by proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God here on earth, that means you are on a mission to love people by proclaiming and demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come to earth. You are his follower. Now, there are a lot of ways when I use that phrase to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God is here on earth, we get like these crazy, we're like, oh my gosh, how will I ever do that? That sounds impossible. But the truth is that as a church, we've kind of broken that down and we said, well, how did Jesus do that? How did he proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God on earth? How did he love people through that? And we've kind of used here at Clarksburg Church five different ways that that happens. We say that we pray, we give, we invite, we mentor, and we serve. These are the ways that we do this. It's not pie in the sky, grandiose, change the whole world. It's these simple acts that when they are integrated into our lives, change the world around us. We pray, we listen to the Holy Spirit for guidance. We pay attention to the way that God is working in the places where we live, we work, and we play. We give. We look for people who need to be blessed. We, we look at our resources we have and say, who can I bless with these things? We invite. We invite other people into our lives to do life with us, to join together as we go on this journey. We mentor. We allow Jesus to be the mentor of us as we mentor others. And we serve. We look for ways that are just right in our path that we can bring heaven to earth to make this place that we inhabit more like heaven. These are the little things that when integrated into our life, we wind up loving people. Now, we talk a lot about being sent to bring heaven to earth, to be on mission. But sometimes what we miss is the foundation upon which all of that mission is built. Sometimes we respond to the calling of God without embracing the blessing that accompanies it. God's blessing us as we are sent onto this mission. And it's the same blessing that Jesus received. It's this blessing where God says, hey, as you go forth, don't forget. You are my child. I love you. And I'm pleased with you. This is so easy to forget. Now, because you are God's child, you are never alone. As you're sent, you have the backing of the parent who sort of watches over you as you walk up to your mission. You have the parent that when someone's not paying attention, they go, hey, 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 this one. You have the parent that if somebody comes, is like going to jump and protect you. As you are sent, you have the backing of a parent who holds all the resources, all the support, and all the power to stand and walk with you. And you are loved. Now, you may say, like, I don't feel loved. I don't feel like God is with me. I feel like I have been forgotten. I feel like I have been forsaken. There are so many needs, and there's so, many, so much tragedy that surrounds you, and you wonder, where is God the father that loves you and is pleased with you. 
because you don't feel him. In the, book of the, in the book of Isaiah, the Israelites actually felt a really similar way. They had the same question. They were supposed to be the people of God, and yet they didn't feel loved at all. They felt forgotten. They felt forsaken. And so God speaks to them in this way in the chapter 49 of Isaiah. He says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. A mother's love for her child isn't just physical and emotional. It's actually unconditional. It's indescribable. And God is saying, I want you to compare my love for you with that of a mother's. God's saying, you see a mother's love. And that's nothing compared to the love that I have for you. You see her physical love. You see how she naturally moves towards you. You see how when you cry out, she can hear in the voice of all the cries which child is hers. God says, don't you know that everything about my glory and my nature and the core of my being drives me powerfully towards you? I am a God of love and faithfulness. God says, you give me nothing. All you do is you take and you take and you take and you take. You are completely selfish and you add no value to my life at all. And yet I love you unconditionally. But God's love for you isn't just words. Because love can never be just words. It must take action so that you can believe that that person actually loves you. So in Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah and he follows up with this. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now at first that seems like just another metaphor, the mother's love and the, the, the engraving on the hands, but this is just another metaphor to describe the love that God has for you, that, that he loved you so much, that he loved you so unconditionally that he tattooed your names on his hands, just like someone in young love might do for the person they love. Now it was true in ancient times that sometimes the name of a master would be tattooed on the slave as a way to say I'm devoted to you for always. But never, ever, ever, never, ever would the name of a slave be tattooed on the master. That would mean that the master is devoted to the slave. But that's what we have here. And you might think that that's this beautiful analogy. Wow, God has my name tattooed on him. But the scripture doesn't actually say that it's tattooed. It's actually this really grotesque and horrible thing. It doesn't say tattooed on his palm of his hand. It says engraved. I've engraved your name on my hand. And the word engraved is this very specific thing to mean engraved with a hammer and a chisel or a spike. Now think about that for a second. Imagine that, that someone out of deep and profound love for you would let people take a hammer and drive a spike right through the palm of their hands. What a horrible image. And yet centuries later, there was a man named Thomas. And Jesus appears to him and he says, look, touch my hands. See the love that I have for you. Look at what's on the palm of my hands. Look at the love of God for you. God has this unconditional love for you like a mother loves a nursing infant 
He loves you so much that he would allow himself to be forsaken so that you wouldn't be. He allowed himself to die so that you would experience the riches of life. And that's the illustration that we see when it comes to baptism. They go into the water to symbolize the death that is experienced with Christ. And they come out of the water to show the new life that we have in Christ, a life lived as a child of God. Now, the degree to which God is pleased with you has nothing to do with your performance. Remember, when uh, these words, I am pleased with you, are said to Jesus, he's done nothing yet. And when they're said to each of you, you don't have to have accomplished anything yet. And God is still pleased with you because of you. So often we forget and we think that we have to earn our position or our love or our pleasure or the pleasure of God. We think that we have to set out on our mission and we have to prove ourselves. And as we go, God is standing over us and he's keeping score of how many times we've succeeded and how many times we have failed. And we think that if we mess up, we've ruined God's plans. And we look to the person to our right and our left and we think we're not quite measuring up. So God's much more pleased with them than he is with us. But no, at the beginning, God proclaims, you are my child. I love you, and with you, I am well pleased.